Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. My name is Richard Osler, the host of this podcast. Um, as you may know, this podcast is a labor of love. You can't donate. There's no money stream. It's just a platform for generally LGBTQ Latter-day Saints to come forward and share their stories. And it's not a correlated platform where we're just sharing one type of story. We're trying to share as many stories as we can. It's helpful for me and hopefully for helpful for you listeners to hear a variety of stories to better meet the needs of this group of Latter-day Saints. And if you're LGBTQ, that different stories will help you in different ways. So you listeners really make this podcast go, but the real heroes of the podcast are the people that bravely step forward and share their stories. And I have one of those um, people in my home now. His name is Tom Fairholm. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thanks. Happy to be here. Um, as we usually do, we said a prayer, and our hope is that this podcast will be helpful. You'll feel a spirit if you're LGBTQ, that Tom will have some thoughts that will be helpful for you, um, help you have hope, help you feel closer to Christ, help you to have better perspective and principles to make your way forward. If you're a parent or a local leader, or just anybody listening, wanting to better support LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, our hope that so things Tom share will be helpful for you. Um, I kind of like to do a little bio, and then I usually turn over my guests to make sure I didn't mess it up too much. But Tom is 24. He grew up in the state of, in Virginia, near Washington, D.C. That's right. And um, so he's an East Coast guy. He came um, to BYU following his mission in Russia. Um, we're recording this in May of 2021. Tom just graduated from BYU with a degree in music composition and R Russian, a code degree. Yeah, that, that's two degrees. Yeah. Two different degrees from two very different departments then. <laughs> and um, those of you that are on Tom's Facebook or know Tom personally know that he is a gifted composer. And um, I've been watching his Facebook and just, you know, he's, I think I probably will undersell his gifts in music and we won't get a chance to really talk about that or appreciate that, but please check out Tom's Facebook page and connect with his wonderful gifts of music. I think we'll end this podcast with a, we have a piano in the podcast room, and I think we're going to ask Tom to share a piece at the end of this podcast. Tom's plans for this summer, or sorry, this fall, he's been accepted in grad school, and the, and the focus of your grad school, tell our listeners where that is and geographically. Yeah, so that'll be at the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music. I'll just pursue a master's in music composition. And that is great. I love you following your dreams. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this. Tom's gay. Um, <laughs> I I can't remember how he said that beginning. Did I say that beginning of the podcast I or just assume it's, that? It's an important detail, isn't it? <laughs> so Tom's gay. He um, I became aware of Tom when he wrote a, um, I don't know what we'd call this, Tom. Do you call it an essay or called an essay. Yeah. Tell our readers where this essay is and when you wrote it. Yeah, so this essay is uh, published on medium.com. It's called Of Power, Of Love, And Of A Sound Mind. This was my coming out post. So um, yeah, I, I wanted a long form format to express my thoughts. And then I just linked it to my Facebook and closed the computer and, <laughs> and, and that was it. So I encourage, uh, we'll link to this in the podcast description. It's really well written. Tom, one of his gifts is writing and articulating complex, complex issues. And Tom's in the middle of complex issues um, with his personal life story, being gay and, and ha having a strong belief in the church. But it's really powerful and it's very insightful. And it, it offers some ideas on how we can do better. And I like um, considering ideas of how we can do better in this space. Um, so I think we'll divide this podcast listeners um, into a couple sections. One is kind of a chronological coming out story. But then I want to talk about a lot about this essay and, the, and some of the concepts, um, the complex concepts that Tom's willing to address that I like talking about complex topics on this podcast and the nuance and the paradigms and the paradoxes, I guess is a better word. And um, there's a lot of, of that in Tom's story. So is that okay, Tom? That sounds great, thanks. So give us a chronological story of being gay and when you came out to your parents, what your mission was like, sort of some of that story. Yeah, definitely. So uh, like you mentioned, I grew up in Ashburn, Virginia, uh, a really amazing place, uh, especially meaningful to grow up in the church there. Just a beautiful community and amazing leaders and friends. I just felt really at, really at home at church. And so 
you know, one of the, one of the interesting, interesting things for me was that, you know, all the things connected with my sexuality, the things that made me different as a gay person, they, uh, they actually made me feel really at home at church. That wasn't true of school. At school, they made me different and, uh, that led to some teasing and stuff, but, but at, at, at church, I felt really valued and loved and cared for. And I wasn't openly gay at the time, but I, I felt like that was a home for me. And so I grew up in a strong home with amazing parents who always loved me. And, and so I, there's never been a doubt in my mind that God loves me and that I'm his son. I've never doubted that for a second. And I think because of that, I've been really blessed to have grown up pretty healthy and happy. Um, but around fifth, sixth grade, uh, I started to notice <laughs> some of the differences. I remember I was, it was a summer day and I was looking, I, I was at, I think an amusement park or something. And I was just watching some of the other boys my age and feeling sad <laughs> for some reason that I didn't understand. And, uh, but feeling a, a sense of distance, you know, and as I got older, as I got older, I think, uh, I got really good at telling myself that it was something else that I was just, I just admired the guys my age or I just thought they were cool. But, uh, so I, I got really good at convincing myself <laughs> that it was anything else than what it really was. And, but, but eventually it got too obvious. <laughs> I was probably 15, 16 years old and I just did the math one day. You know, I've never, I, I never felt any attraction to girls, only to guys. Uh, sexual romantic thoughts, dreams, those were, those were guys my age. And so, uh, you know, what else can you conclude? <laughs> I just, it, for me, it was a pretty logical process, even though I had put that off for a long time. And about as soon as the time that I was able to admit that to myself, that I'm gay, I told my parents. I remember testing the waters a little bit. I would ask my, my mom, you know, what would you, what would you think if you had a gay son or, 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 or daughter? You know, what, what, how would, how would you react? And, she always responded really kindly. She would say something like, you know, I love all my kids no matter what. I think that would be so hard because it must be painful, but but there's nothing my kids could do that would make me love them any less. So for me, it was an absolutely, I knew I was safe. So as soon as I was able to admit it to myself, I, I took my parents aside one night and I told them, look, I'm gay. And they, uh, you know, they were startled. <laughs> my mom was... It took her a second to wrap her head around it. She didn't know how to react, but but I just tried to explain it as calmly as I could, and they were they were cool. So my my dad was especially just kind of uh, unflappable. You know, he was just thought that's that's okay. We'll get through this, no problem. And I was about fifteen at the time, and so I thought, well, this doesn't really matter to me yet because I don't have to deal with this. Right? I'm in high school. I've got a lot of other stuff going on beyond besides just this. And so I can kind of put this in a box and I'll just kind of compartmentalize it and I'll just live my life. Right. I knew I had to graduate high school and then I would go to BRU for a year and then I'm going to mission. So any sort of dealing with this was still several years down the road. So, I mean, maybe it's not healthy to compartmentalize all the time, but at that time for me, it really was, it was great. I just, I just decided I didn't need to care about this yet. And I certainly wasn't going to tell anyone because it was the most embarrassing thing about me. So that wasn't going to happen. So, uh, you know, I, uh, I went to BYU for a year before my mission. I remember really being very nervous that the other guys in my floor, in the dorms, would perceive me as gay. So I tried extra hard to be straight and that made me pretty miserable. <laughs> and that actually led to a bit of a, a crisis of faith, a mini faith crisis, I guess, where... You know, I knew that a mission was coming up. I knew that there was this thing about me that I that I just didn't like or that I was terrified that someone would find out. And, and it kind of made me doubt a lot of things. But I remember praying and, and reading the Book of Mormon with an intensity that I had never before done and just feeling a wash of the Spirit. And I didn't know what to do with that <laughs> uh, be, because that's a complicated space. On one hand, you know... I understand that the church and its policies and doctrine is going to pose some painful problems for me down the road. But for right now, I believe that this is true. I believe the Book of Mormon is true. I, I believe in Christ. I believe in God. And so I have to live in that complicated space. You know? But my testimony was sufficiently strong that I, I knew I had to serve a mission. I had wanted to serve a mission my whole life. It had been my dream. And so... Uh, 
yeah, so I applied my freshman year of college or sent in my papers and I was called to Moscow. How many missions are there, were there in Russia when you were assigned there? So I think it's been consolidated since, I think at the time there were seven, now there's five. Okay, so you're assigned to Moscow. Moscow. Yeah, keep telling. So you're off to Moscow and you talked about this in your uh, Medium article. And one of the things I picked up there is you just, you really want to connect people with the Savior. Yeah, absolutely. Talk more about your mission and what it was like to be a gay missionary. Yeah, I guess my, my first moment in which the gay part and the missionary part intersected was in the MCC. It was, uh, I ended up in the MCC right after the Supreme Court's ruling on Obergefell v. Hodges. So the, the same-sex marriage case that made it legal nationwide. And uh, if I recall correctly, shortly after that ruling, the, uh, the First Presidency set, sent a letter to be read in sacrament meeting, you know, in every American war, reiterating the church's stance on marriage and that, you know, laws may change, but the church, the church's teachings don't on this one. And that was read in church in the MTC. And I remember there was a missionary in class after, in a meeting afterwards who got up and, and uh, explained that, uh, reiterated the, the message. It also explained that um, being gay was a sin and that same-sex attraction was a weakness that would be overcome could that should be overcome through the atonement right and and since since Christ's grace covers all weaknesses or all frailties that uh, one need apply the atonement to overcome this sin and that struck me as uh, pretty hurtful sure with our listeners why that's hurtful because there is logic in that yeah well um, and but I share... understand the perspective right because yeah. I think in people's minds, a homosexual orientation or a bisexual orientation poses a problem to eternal progression. In other words, it makes it very difficult to receive a temple marriage or to pr progress along the covenant path that, that we're taught, right? And so I guess the logic goes, well, then this must be something that has to be fixed because it's kind of an impediment. But I've just never felt that to be true. I've never felt uh, that it's something to repent of. I've never felt prompted to repent of my same-sex attraction. And... Um, I believe that God makes people differently and that that's actually part of the plan. It's not a mistake. It's not an accident and certainly not a sin on the part of the person who's made differently. It would be like telling someone who's born with green eyes that they should repent, right? That's nothing they can control. And that's not an actually a problem, right? So that struck me as hurtful. It also struck me as untrue. And uh, that was, that was something that was painful for me. I have probably said those comments before, Tom, because I thought that, you know, I, but someone framed it with me just like you did, is it's like I'm right-handed and have blue eyes, and I don't think the atonement can change basic character attributes or physical attributes like that. And so while well, there's logic in what that missionary said, and I realize you do a good job of pointing out perhaps the backstory why he's communicating that logic, I realize how painful that is for you. Yeah, and I don't, I don't detect in, in this uh, fellow missionary particular um, malice. I, I don't think he was trying to be hurtful. I don't think he even possessed a great deal of like hatred towards gay people. But I think it was a, an assumption based on a misunderstanding. Did you, how was that night for you after that, that day? Yeah, was that a harder that. night? Can, and you, can you talk to anybody about this? Or no, did you just... I, couldn't, I couldn't talk to anyone about it. So I kind of uh, fumed uh, alone about that one. I did discuss it with the missionary later, um, a couple days later, once I had cooled down and I knew it wasn't going to flare up. But um, yeah. It's good. Keep telling your story. Okay. But uh, that was kind of, that was one of few uh, painful interactions. There, there was a, a time in which a missionary asked another missionary if, uh, what would they do if they had ever had a gay son? And he, he said that he'd make him watch straight porn and beat the gay out of him. Yikes. Yeah, yikes. Uh, and of course, I'm there hearing this, and <laughs> you know, what do you do? How do you react? How do you react? Uh, you just kind of nod or something, and try not to seem like that thing that they find so disturbing. Missions are pretty hard, but to be in an environment where you might be hearing things about people like you, yeah. and you can't even talk that this is who you are, it is pretty difficult. Well, you know, and. and that, that gave, there's a kind of painful advantage about being in the closet, which was that you, you learn what people really think. Hmm. Right? Because when you know someone's gay, you do filter the way you talk about the gay people. 
when you assume that everyone around you is just like you, you can be more free with your feelings. If those feelings are negative, uh, you're, yeah, you express them. Did you hear anything positive about LGBTQ people during your mission from LDS? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I don't remember if I did. Okay. Uh, to be fair, the missionaries who served with me are some of the most wonderful, Christ-like, interesting, compassionate people. Good. Uh, there were a couple of bumps in the road, but I, I feel blessed to be to have been able to serve in that mission under some of those leaders. Uh, really, really compassionate. Do you think being gay connected you and able to help you reach in a way that was not because of just who you are and your unique gifts? Yeah, I think uh, I think I would have been a far worse missionary if I was straight. Not not to say that straight missionaries aren't good. Of course, there's so many amazing ones. But for me, I do think that the uh, the differences that this part of me have provided did change my approach or, or make me able to connect with people in a different way. I remember being called to Russia and feeling so uh, so inadequate. I thought, how, how am I going to relate to Russian people, right? Especially Russian men, you have this kind of stereotype as being man's men. And, and uh, it's certainly not, it's not certainly not uh, known as a gay friendly country. Uh, I, I felt very inadequate, but as I got to the mission field, I, I, I realized that the things that made me unique, that made me different, were the reasons why I was called there. And I felt so at home and I felt like I had never been so good at anything before in my life. It was fun, and it was fun, you know, to talk to different people and who are so unique and, and funny and fascinating and, and different from me. And to be able to view those differences as a, a strength and as something to be appreciated rather than a threatening thing. Um, and that might have been connected to my experience growing up as gay because you have to be comfortable with difference and, and view that as a value. So, uh, so for me, it was, it was just a, a, one of the greatest things I've done. And to, to be able to testify every day to people that Jesus loves them and that there's a God who knows them and cares about them and that each person around you has this kind of infinite value and potential, I, I, felt, so, um, I felt so whole during those full two years. For me, it, it, I know people have different experiences as missionaries and especially as gay missionaries, but for me, it was one of the most meaningful things I had done. I love your emphasis on the Savior, Heavenly Parents that love us. That, to me, is the core message, the healing message of the atonement that the world needs and the way that the Restoration makes that available in their lives in a greater way because of our restored doctrine. And I love focusing on that. Yeah. Um, sorry, listeners, I just spilled my water if you heard that. Talk about, and maybe you get these messages from um, gay Latter-day Saints considering a mission and, and sort of, you know, saying, Tom, I'm gay, I'm thinking about a mission, but I don't know what my future holds after my mission. I don't know exactly my where I'm going to be, should I serve a mission or not serve a mission, not knowing exactly how my future is going to unfold? What advice yeah. would you give somebody in that boat? Um, I think there's a lot of value in considering the next step to take. You know, there's that hymn, Leap Kindly Light, right? I don't ask to see the distance scene. One step enough for me. And I think uh, if we focus on hypotheticals down the road, it can be a kind of paralyzing fear versus right now. I mean, if you just ask yourself, what does God want me to do right now? What's the next step for me to take? I think that brings a lot of clarity. It also makes things less stressful because you don't have to solve all the big problems, but taking that next step. And that'll be different for each person. I mean, for me, it was absolutely the right decision to serve a mission. And I'm biased because I had such a great mission. I think everyone deserves a mission, but I understand that that might not be in the cards for some people. I think that's why we have the Holy Ghost. He'll teach us what to do. But uh, I don't think uh, being gay should be viewed as a disqualifying factor in that decision. It's not. That's good. I like that. Keep sharing your story. Okay. Um, yeah, so should we go after the mission? Sure. Yeah. So after my mission, I went to BYU. Uh, I went to go finish up my degree. And... That's kind of when the rubber hit the road because my whole life I had thought, well, okay, it doesn't matter. The gay thing doesn't matter. I had to, I had to graduate high school. I'm going to do my first year of college. I'm going to go on my mission. And uh, I'll just deal with this thing later, right? And then later happens. <laughs> and uh, 
And that's when things get intense, right? So, uh, but, but I had a plan, right? I knew, I knew what was supposed to happen. At least for me, I, I never expected God to change my sexual orientation. But I did think if I, would be, if I would be faithful and if I would work hard and keep the commandments, that I would find some woman who I would be attracted to enough to make a marriage work. I didn't think I'd become straight. I just thought there would be some, some woman for me. And I do think there are some people who do have that experience. So I'm not going to discount that. Um, so I, I started searching for that, that person. I didn't, it's not that I, it's not that I dated a whole lot. Uh, I dated enough to know what was right for me. Uh, so I went on some dates and uh, I even dated a, a girl a little bit longer. And that process for me was very clear that the, the plan or the, uh, the, the picture I painted of my life was not going to be reality for me. That's painful. Is that the hardest experience you've faced so far as a gay lottery saint is the, that realization? I think so. And I think, you know, in conjunction with that, I had to place a lot of stock in my patriarchal blessing, which talked about a wife, you know? And, but then as I would, you know, as I pursued it, and as I tried to keep the, I was, you know, keeping the commandments as best as I could, trying to stay close to the spirit and learning from experience, which is one of the ways that we learn and we receive revelation. It's clear for me that that just, that was, at least for now, <laughs> that's not, not available to me or not, not in the plan. And so that has, you know, that has larger implications for my feelings about priesthood or revelation, right? Or inspiration. It, suddenly your, you know, your religious paradigm falls into question. Now, for me, I've always been, uh, so I've had to dwell in this complicated space. You know, how do I make sense of this? How do I move forward? And how do I, how do I not let this confusing thing destroy everything else? Like, like one domino knocking down all the rest of the dominoes. Because that can happen. But uh, thankfully, you know, I've always had a great friend system, uh, family support, creative things to do to keep me happy and to keep me busy. So I just got busy. I just did homework. <laughs> I did homework. I hung out with friends. I wrote a lot of music. And I thought, all right, we're going to compartmentalize this again, right? So this didn't work. I tried to deal with this. I tried to have the happy kind of uh, sparkling dream. And that wasn't going to happen. So then I just shut it up in a, in a box again. And I put it aside. And I moved forward to graduate. <laughs> you know? You're doing a good job of telling your story. So. Keep telling, yeah, so eventually that led you to coming out broadly, writing this me an article and taking this box back off the shelf and having to yeah. hit it head on. I do like the way you said you fully explored, you know, dating women and understanding. And then I realized the pain you felt is that dream you've had. You really had that dream at age 16, 17, 18, yeah. that somehow this would still work. I'm sure if I talked to you on your mission and you opened up to me, you would have said, that's my plan. And then there's this reality that that's not going to be your plan. And I think listeners, my experience talking to a lot of people is that's really painful. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just recognized when I was your age at BYU, um, I wasn't in this double bind. I mean, that picture perfect world that often provided me a lot of motivation, in my academic studies, because I wanted to be the provide for my future family and provide for her all became reality. And, the, if I was sort of locked out of that possibility and powerless to change it, that creates a lot of pain. And I think you've done, I asked, you know, you're about your emotional health before the podcast yeah. went live and suicide, and you've been done remarkably well um, being emotionally healthy. And I, it's a credit to you. It's a credit to your family. It's maybe a credit to your chemistry that you're not prone to emotionalness and your music. But I think you're, it, but the, there's pain there. Yeah. And I think you've done a good job of trying to navigate that and just saying, okay, this is the reality of my situation. What can I do right. in the next step? So talk about just wherever else you want to go on this podcast. Sure. I don't know if you want to go to what led you to come out more broadly and write the median post. Yeah. Oh, it's funny you talked about, you know, the pain of when your plan doesn't, doesn't match your reality. We literally, at the end of our missions, we, we made a plan. We wrote out a plan for this is what will happen in the next six months. This will happen in the next year, next five years. I think it's important to set goals and to strive for something, right? But it, uh, what I had in my mind for how my future would look, uh, just when, when you realize that that's, that, that might be different in lived experience, you have to rework some things in your mind. 
So I don't know what my long-term plan is, uh, but I have to kind of live moment to moment. Now, in terms of uh, in terms of coming out, I just came out when I felt prompted to do so, and it took me a long time to feel that way. It didn't feel relevant at the time for several years. I had close friends who were out to me probably for two years, and I was a listening ear, and I was maybe uh, unusually understanding or empathetic, but I didn't disclose it. And I don't think it was because I was necessarily terrified of their reaction. I just didn't feel like that was the time for me. I felt like for me, the time, what I need to do now is listen. I need to be a support. I need to live my life as I've been living it. I felt like I was on the right track. But I knew that if I, if I did feel prompted to come out, I'd have to, I'd have to do it. And uh, that happened this, uh, this last year. So, so Now, I did come out to my sister uh, maybe a year and a half after my mission, and that felt good. That was a helpful support to kind of just expand that circle, a little bit of people who knew, but that was it. And not till this, this past year. So uh, I think COVID was a time of introspection for a lot of us. Uh, and I realized I was kind of sick of lying and sick of pretending. And that if I needed, if I was going to connect with people more, I needed to be more of myself. And I needed to share this kind of vulnerable part of me or this part that I was embarrassed about or was afraid of. And I didn't know how people would react to it. So uh, I gradually came out to more members of my family, uh, some close friends. And then around Christmas time, I just, I knew that there were thoughts swirling in my mind and a lot of complicated contradictions that I needed to iron out. So I decided to write just for me, you know, as a personal writing project, just to try to figure out, all right, what do I believe? How do I think about myself and this experience of being gay? And it was just a personal project. So I started writing. And uh, as I did so, I started feeling very strongly that there might be something in, in my perspective as I've written it that would be helpful to people. And then I started feeling prompted, like, just to come out to everyone. So it became uh, the Medium article, and I linked it to Facebook and and that was my coming out. That was in uh, early February. What was the reaction? Um, the reaction was overwhelmingly kind. Yeah. I was, uh, I actually thought no one would read it <laughs> because it's kind of a long piece. I thought they would, uh, you know, see that I was gay and that was, would be good enough. And I'm sure that a lot of people did, that, that probably is as, as far as it went. But uh, I, I was really touched that people had resonated with something that I had written and that they didn't judge me for it. You know, they, they were able to make some space for some like maybe complicated views or something that's a little bit uh, outside of the mainstream. But it didn't change how people treated me. There were some people who were upset. Some people uh, were offended <laughs> by some of the ideas I, I had spoken about. Um, but I knew that would happen. So I could live with that. Talk about complicated co contradictions. I think that's the term you used. Yeah. Just, you know, some of the things you shared in your essay that you'd like our listeners, I, we both invite you to read the whole essay, but highlight parts of the essay you particularly like our essay, our readers, our listeners to hear from you. Yeah, well, I think uh, maybe to start, part of the reason I wanted to write the piece is because I was kind of worried about assumptions that I thought people might make about me if they knew this part of me. I was worried they would assume either that I was uh, you know, miserable and I hated the church and, and then that was assumed, or, or that they would assume that I would, you know, I, I have no qualms with the church and, you know, believe everything exactly, exactly. But I, I wasn't in that space. I was somewhere in between, right? I mean, I had this deep testimony of the gospel and love for the savior and commitment to, to restore truth. But, uh, I, I couldn't get myself to understand or believe our teachings on marriage. And, you know, to be, to be honest, I, I, I really tried. <laughs> I, I suspect I've tried harder than most humans <laughs> to believe and understand that one. Uh, and, you know, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm not a stranger to the process of receiving answers to, to, to questions. Uh, uh, you know, I, I believe the Book of Mormon is true. I believe in Christ. And there's a certain process you go through. You search, you ponder, you pray, you receive promptings. And, and that has been a consistent pattern for all elements of my testimony. But for our teachings on marriage, it just I simply haven't gotten a confirmation. And 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 I think I mean I, I you you could assume that I'm biased on that, that I'm really trying not to receive the answer, but I really was. <laughs> and I just don't I just haven't been able to grasp it. But for me, 
you know, that's a question of the dominoes again. Well, because this part for me doesn't make sense, does that mean that everything else has to topple? And I wasn't willing to do that either. You know, what can I hold on to even when I have misgivings or, 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 or doubts about something else? And I didn't feel like it had to destroy everything. I didn't want to. And so for part of me, for being myself or being true to myself, it, it involves both. You know, I'm, I'm deeply religious and that's fundamental to who I am. And I, I, I don't have any desire to change that. And I'm committed to participating in the church. Like I, this, is, this is the community of believers I want to be a part of. And this is where I find God. But I'm also gay. And I wasn't willing to ignore that either. So that's a crossroads, you know. How do you reconcile it? It's a hard question. It's a really hard question. I wish I had answers for you. I, I think listeners know that at this point, my old self would have offered simple platitudes like, Tom, it'll all work out in the next life. Or, And I, I realized that just pointing to the next life or trust, it just doesn't go where you need to go to acknowledge the complexity of your situation. You're 24. <laughs> your life expectancy is... 70 years from now, 60 years from now, something like that, and facing, you know, six decades of, of wondering how your future works out. If you decide to be celibate, six decades of being alone without a companion, that can, I don't know how you feel about that, could be overwhelming to men and women your age and younger. Mm -hmm. And just how do I do that? Um, and to sometimes a feeling that you would like to have a life partner and how do I do that? And how will my faith community respond to me? And um, talk just more about the complexity of your situation or, or more about the median article. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess part of the thing that was difficult for me to, to, to grapple with was the notion that I, I didn't feel, and I don't feel at this point, inspired to pursue celibacy or mixed orientation marriage. And uh, I know that some people do, and I'm happy to give them the license to do so. You know, someone else's perspective or, or prompting doesn't affect mine. So that, that's not a threatening thing for me. I think there's space for a lot of different people. But when you don't feel inspired to pursue either of those options, then, uh, well, then what? <laughs> and uh, for me, I started thinking about some of the first stories we tell ourselves in the Bible and the Book of Mormon, they're, 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 they're kind of these challenging accounts. You think about Adam and Eve, right? Being given, being given a commandment and then uh, it being the right choice for them to transgress it. I think of Nephi being commanded to slay Laban, right? Uh, and for all of these folks, the purpose in the transgression was to progress and that they actually couldn't progress to how they need to, uh, to where they needed to be if they weren't willing to take that step outside of some some strictures that have been laid down and i started th I, I started thinking well might we give other people the space to evaluate their life choices without feeling the need to punish them or ostracize them you know if someone feels that God's will for them in life is to pursue a same-sex marriage? Might we give them the space to do so? Uh, I mean, we teach about marriage, at least to straight people, such that it's the, the best way to progress, to become like God, right? That th this is the function of that institution, is to help people develop Christ-like attributes and become more like our heavenly parents. And, 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 and it started to seem to me uh, nonsensical that that wouldn't, also extend to people who were uh, who God created to be gay. Now I understand that some people will disagree with me on that one, but uh, you know I, I don't I don't advocate a kind of promiscuous lifestyle. Uh, I I do hope for the opportunity for gay couples to pursue spiritual progression in the same way that straight couples do. And if 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 their progression requires that transgression of, of a commandment, then uh, it's not without precedent in the scriptures. Um, I'm going to read a a section of your median article that I think is a follow up to what 
I'm also aware that my ideas, and I can't even pronounce some of these words. <laughs> I'm also aware. I'm also aware that my ideas will smell dangerously of a kind of moral relativism. Re, re, so, and how do I say it? Uh, sorry, anathema. Anathema to Orthodox believers. But are we not to liken the scriptures to ourselves? Should we not examine the complexity of the Savior's example and then thoughtfully consider the extent? to which we emulated. And even though I couldn't understand the words, I understand the, some of the words. <laughs> understand what you're trying to share is that don't just say that I'm trying to do this out of convenience. Yeah. Um, the, the principles I'm sharing about Adam and Eve and sometimes these paradoxes that the scriptures show and, and just sort of honor your personal revelation as you feel the best path forward to progress. Um, and even though we may not fully understand that, honor um, just your best path forward. Right, right. I mean, maybe the way the way that I think about it is that. Well, I, I I've been kind of uh, kind of upset that some people have kind of mis maybe misinterpreted or misunderstood what I'm trying to say. In that, uh, yeah, I, I'm not I'm not trying to argue that one disregard all the commandments, right, or that you just keep whatever commandments you feel like keeping. Good. Um, I'm committed to keeping all the commandments. <laughs> uh, but when a person's spiritual progression comes in, con uh, comes in conflict with the commandment, then I, I wonder if God's plan for that person might, in might imply a different path, right? So uh, another way to think of it is, you know, there's no amount of righteous that we can become to earn heaven. There's, there's not any amount of commandments that we can keep that get us into heaven, right? What gets us saved is Jesus Christ, right? And so then, what's the function of the commandments? I mean, the way I understand it is to connect me with Jesus Christ. And I find that when I live commandments, that I do feel closer to Jesus Christ. But when the application of a commandment has the opposite effect, when it uh, drives someone away from the relationship with Christ or weakens that faith and that connection then it seems to be counterproductive or it seems not to be working as intended. So that's part of what I question. And this is just a platform that it's a safe place to have these kind of discussions. So thank you for um, opening your heart. And it takes some vulnerability to do that. And for the median article you wrote, because I just think this is a framework to continue to have these discussions in our church, in our homes. And, and it, I think these kind of discussions bring us together and being able to talk about these issues in faithful spaces is a good thing. Um, I like Elder Cook's quote, unity and diversity. There's just going to be diversity of thought on these feelings within our church right now. And I think you're doing a great job of trying to talk about these issues and also, you know, um, support the church that you love and have served so well. Um, talk about just our doctrine Tom, does our doctrine change? Is it always been the same? Is it okay to hope our doctrine changes in the future? Does that make you unfaithful to hope that something changes? Yeah. Um, I mean, my perspective is I think we, we say that doctrine doesn't change um, until it does change, and then we say it was a policy. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it does Any change. examples of that? Um, yeah, I think we certainly have this discussion on things like uh, polygamy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, another way to think about it is our teachings on marriage in terms of race, right? Uh, I don't know that it was an official church doctrine, but it certainly was taught that we shouldn't marry people of other races, and then that simply isn't the case anymore. You could also have a discussion on uh, issues of priesthood and race. Um, but, you know, part of the restoration, as I understand it, is this unfolding of truth, this line upon line, precept upon precept, and sometimes it's additive, so we get more information. Sometimes it's subtractive. We correct things that have been uh, maybe unhelpful. I don't know where our current teachings on same-sex marriage fall into that scheme. But, you know, I, to me, to be a Latter-day Saint is to believe the heavens are open, you know, that the canon is open. And so it, uh, it strikes me as kind of antithetical to the core aspects of our faith to claim that we can never receive more information or truth on this very complicated thing that... I actually don't think we've received a whole lot of information on. We, we've received good information on, on marriage, um, especially concerning straight marriage, but how do gay people fit into the plan of salvation? What's God's will for them in this life and the next life? 
that's actually not clear to me. And I don't know that this one size fits all approach that you've been taking has been effective. Um, so for me, part of having faith is just being willing to ask some uncomfortable questions and then to, you know, not, not write off the possibility that there might be something we don't know yet. I don't know what that is, but I'm willing to ask. I think that's a really faithful segment you just shared. Um, and I'm with you on that. I, I sort of feel like I don't know Heavenly Father's will and I'm not a leader of the church. So I don't have sort of the standing to sort of prescribe where the church should go as a rank and file member on this. And not, you didn't prescribe where the church should go on this either. So uh, listeners, I think what if someone opens up like Tom has or I have, let's don't, let's just acknowledge the courage it takes to remain in the church when they have feelings that perhaps something could or should change as they're willing to just let the leaders and Heavenly Father line upon line work that out. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I think about um, straight families <clears throat> and it's a perfect path for our family and our six kids. And I think it's okay to recognize the beauty of our doctrine around straight couples. And you just did that in your last segment. But to just be open that it seems like, you know, it, it wouldn't cost us anything if we just got more light and understanding how LGBTQ people do the plan of salvation and do families and and thrive like straight couples do in mortality. I think we're meant to thrive. I think we're here to be happy and be fulfilled and grow and just be open that perhaps that's an area where as a church we just have more work to do because there's a lot of pain out there. Um, straight people are having a generally a better experience than gay people when it comes to this part of the gospel. And it's a big part of the gospel, being celibate for 60 years versus having a partner for 60 years. Um, any more thoughts on that or anything you're not comfortable with that I said? I think that's really great. Um, yeah, and, and I'm not prescribing a doctrine. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how I fit into the plan of salvation. I don't know what the afterlife looks like for someone like me. And in the absence of the, uh, some of that clarity, I think if we could be a little bit kinder to each other, give each other some space. Um, one thing I am, I am critical of is our, our policy and excommunication. Talk about that, Tom. Yeah. Um, well, it has improved, <laughs> to be fair. The 2015 policy required a church disciplinary council for same-sex marriage. This is the same policy that excluded children of gay couples from, from marriage or from baptism. Um, but that's recently changed such that same-sex marriage may result in a church disciplinary hearing. It's one of the excommunicable offenses, but doesn't necessarily require one. Um, and I question whether excommunication is an appropriate move against gay couples who would like to be active in the church. Uh, I think we're kind of unnecessarily shooting ourselves in the foot when we have these gay members who who would love to participate and to stay active and, and to join with us um, and are trying to navigate a complica complicated road. They feel called to marriage, but they also feel called to their faith. If we can give them a space to do both without feeling the need to cast them out or kick them out of church, uh, that would solve a lot of our problems. It doesn't even require any new revelation or doctrine. We could make that decision tomorrow to just not excommunicate for gay marriage. I think that would give someone like me a lot of hope that, yeah, I don't completely see how I fit into all this. I don't have all the clarity in terms of the doctrine and the teaching, but at least this is a place where I can go and participate. Uh, you know, if we're to build Zion, we're to be of one heart and one mind. And I don't think that means we need to be the same. If we could live with people in their complexity and not feel a need to exclude on an institutional level, on a social level, it would go a long way. I love hearing your hopes. And when you talk about that, I think of what Christ did. And so to me, your vision is consistent with Christ's ministry and what he did and how he helped everybody feel included and not excluded and didn't spend too much time talking about who in who's out. He just wanted everybody to feel table fellowship, to feel welcome at his table, people that society said shouldn't be at his table. 
And so I love your vision. I've always felt, listeners, you've heard me talk about this, that the temple is kind of where I think the gate narrows and there's a belief and behavior hurdle. But the congregation level, I think, is what Tom's talking about, is everybody should feel welcome in our congregation and, and gay couples in a same-sex marriage. I think Christ would welcome them if they came in holding hands to a congregation, I think. And I think a lot of members would right now, too. But there's fear you know, that they're not fully welcome. And part of that fear is the reality that they might get excommunicated, which is a pretty clear message about how we feel about people. Um, if we excommunicate them, or the term is, I think, membership withdrawal, but they're no longer members of the church either way. And I think that I've always felt as a priest, prior priesthood leader, this is my brother's counsel to me, he was a stake president. He said to me when I was starting my bishop assignment, he says, you know, I try to use church discipline if it helps bring somebody back if they want to fully return to the church and fully engage in the church and it's not required, some situations, like you say, church discipline is required, but most aren't. Being in a same-sex marriage isn't, you're right. And so I think church discipline really works if maybe, you know, if people want to fully come back to the church and it's a positive thing that they kind of agree to be a part of the process. Lots of times with the YSAs, I would explain what church discipline was and ask them, would if it wasn't required, would that be helpful to them as they want to fully return? But a gay couple in a same-sex marriage probably doesn't want to return to the church though the point of having a temple recommend. They just want to feel worthy. To Worthy may be the right word, but just to feel welcome. And so to me, that's where church discipline doesn't make sense because they're not trying to get back to the temple. They're not trying... Are you okay with that? Or? I am okay with that. I don't think it gets us closer to our goal, which is gathering Israel. By excommunicating? Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't see how it uh, does anything but produce hurt and animus against the church. Yeah, so, I mean, occasionally I'll get messages from, you know, a couple in a same-sex marriage that love the church and are in a same-sex marriage and want to participate in the church and, and, some priests, and since the handbook, it's optional, some priesthood leaders are handling that differently. And that can be add to a lot of stress and anxiety because they know that some priesthood leaders will handle that differently. And I think one of the points you meet in articles, it's really only those that want to participate in the church that are potentially getting excommunicated. Talk about that, Tom. Well, yeah, I, I could be wrong on this, but as far as I'm aware, you know, I'm, I'm aware of several folks who have, gay folks who have stepped away from the church, pursued a same sex marriage, and they're kind of off the radar. They're off the radar, right? So the church doesn't then hunt down these people and hold disciplinary hearings, right? They just let them be. So that, so that the people, the very people who are at most risk for the, like, the most severe punitive action are the people who most want to participate and who most want to stay. It's the active gay folks who are getting excommunicated. Yeah. So that's, I'm with you on that. And I, uh, I think I'm just with you on that. And that was what I saw firsthand in my church assignment. And I, my brother taught me that. It was a stick president. He says, I just think that we create, in a lot of situations, being excommunicated divides us versus bring us together. Now, I, but I think both Tom and I are saying that at times it's appropriate. I've met with some people who felt be, as part of the process to return to full fellowship, church discipline was part of the repentance. They actually wanted to be an active participant in the repentance process to return to full fellowship. I think the situations Tom's talking about and I'm talking about are people that don't. Yeah. They just want to be, they just are where they are and they want to be accepted where they are and they, and just love them where they are without the need to sort of, you know, determine for them where they should go. Let them just sort of self-determine this for themselves. Right. I mean, these are people who want to participate. They want to serve. You know, they want to lead the, lead the ward choir, in my case, or whatever it is, right? Uh, and why would we, I think we make ourselves weaker when we don't uh, accept everyone's contributions. I mean, I, I, think, I think our church is strong enough and vibrant enough to be inclusive. I don't think it's, I think maybe the excommunication stance is uh, viewing gay people as, as a threat to our congregation. I don't think they're a threat. And I think our church is, uh, is strong enough to handle it. Yeah, and we'll be blessed by the contributions of all members, um, those who at least want to build the kingdom. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, 
mean, the purpose of a church congregation is to help people come into Christ and to help people feel welcome and loved and supported. And to me, that's the application of love thy neighbor as thyself is how we treat people when they come to church and everybody should be welcome. The gate should be wide there. So I'm with you on that. More things you would like to share from the median article or other thoughts that come to your mind? Um, I don't know. I, I'm wondering if people are wondering why. <laughs> I, I think, so I, I have a lot of non-member friends who've, you know, read some of my writing and have been sensitive to my experience. And I think a lot of people might wonder, why on earth do you even want to <laughs> participate so badly? Like, why is this so important to you when you have this? In this church. In this church, right. Uh, you have some misgivings of some of the teachings and yet, you know, affection for for a lot of the other teachings, right? Um, for me, I, I, I like to think about uh, the essence of my religion being found in the symbol of the cross, which is the kind of the vertical axis and the horizontal axis. So for me, the vertical axis refers to the, the connection with the divine, with God, right? And I think I could find that outside of a church. You know, that's spirituality, right? I could pray, I could read the scriptures, I could get, or whatever it is, I could get that communion with, with the divine um, on an individual level, right? But that's just kind of one half of the equation. For me, the horizontal axis, which is the relationship with other people, I need that if I'm going to become like Jesus. And, and there's nothing I want more than to be like Jesus. But I can't do it without other people. And I can't do it without a group of people who are striving towards it together. And, uh, you know, if, <laughs> I can't think of a better way for God to make his people more like Jesus than to put a bunch of different kind of stubborn, uh, <laughs> you know, messy people together in, in a random group and say, you know, build Zion together. We need each other in order to become like Christ. And that means everyone. That means, the, that means gay people. That means people who struggle with gay people. We need it. We need to work together. And, and, and we can't learn to forgive and to be patient and charitable without that difficult and sometimes painful interaction. So I'm signed up. Like I, I want to be part of this program because I want to be like Jesus. And I find a lot in the church that connects me uh, with God. Uh, but but even more importantly, you know, or as important is the, the the mechanism it provides to connect with my neighbor and to learn to love my neighbor, which is of course the first two commandments, right? Love God, and love your neighbor. And on that hang all the laws and the prophets. Christ, right, that cross. Great, great segment. More thoughts. I think I said what I want to say. Um, you've kind of hinted that you feel your path is the same-sex marriage. Is that correct? Um, I suspect that's true. Suspect. I like that. Yeah. I I don't want to push you in that spot if you're not. Well. Uh... Yeah, I mean, open canon, revelation, right? So if God tells me to pursue celibacy or mixed orientation marriage, I'm going to try my best. Uh, and I like the way you said called, because I think some people are called to celibacy, called to mixed right. or inspired, but I think you should do all these because you're not by default, but because you feel like that's through personal revelation, you feel it's the right path. Yeah, certainly Paul suggests that, right? Talk about that. Uh, oh, I wish I could give you the reference. <laughs> like he talks about celibacy as something you're called to. Uh, but to to uh, make that a blanket policy for every person who's been born gay, uh, I, I don't assume that that's going to work for everyone, or that it should. Maybe people have other paths. So if I'm called to that, I'll try my I'll sure try my best. If I'm called to mixed orientation marriage, I won't write it off. Right, I try that too. But right now, I, I don't suspect that's where <laughs> my, I'm feeling prompted. So I'm, I'm open to, to the spirit as, as I proceed, but it really is like one step enough for me. What happens next? I love that. I think it reduces anxiety and stress to just say, I, I don't know exactly how my future is going to work out. I love Elder Bednar's talk about personal revelation. There's a lot of fog in most of our lives, and yeah. we know usually the next step to take. We take that prayerfully, and then usually enough, we sort of see where we need to go. And I think those are great principles of personal revelation. I would... You know, I hope no one would be critical of Tom right now or think he's not temple-worthy or capable of holding a calling or fully participating in the church because he feels his path might be a same-sex marriage. Let's don't take the temple recommend or, our, uh, you know, questions sort of into the future. You know, if you're willing to look church teachings now and you hold the temple recommend and you have a calling in your ward and 
and you serve in other ways, let's don't, if, if somebody like Tom opens up about their future, let's don't then sort of change their standing with the church today if they're completely worthy based on where they feel their feelings might be down the road. Any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I, 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 I think, uh, I think bishops can be really helpful in this. Well, the current bishop I have is just awesome. Yeah, talk about things bishops that are doing are helpful. So I've had really great bishops. I've never had a really bad bishop. I had some less helpful than others, right? But, uh, most of them have been incredibly, uh, kind and compassionate. And, you know, I felt free to speak with bishops about my questions or things that I find confusing about our teachings or, or just struggles I'm having. And that I could do that without risking losing my temple recommend or being forbidden for taking, for, from partaking the sacrament because I'm not sure about my future or I'm not sure about this or that teaching. Uh, I think, I think to, uh, you know, when we, if you create an environment in which the person meeting with the bishop fears that there will be some kind of punitive action taken, if they're honest uh, about their feelings, if they haven't, you know, if they haven't done anything, <laughs> broken any commandments per se, and are just trying to figure things out, I think the bishop can be extremely useful to just be this open listening ear uh, without having to you know, feel the need to, to, to restrict their participation. Yeah, I think those conversations with the bishop, if there's behavior issues, that's one thing. But if there's belief and thoughts and and there's no behavior, it's just this is how I feel, this is what I'm feeling, these are the questions I have. What a great I just love that you can turn to your priesthood leaders to have those discussions. We have to learn to have those discussions with trusted people in the walls of our church and our families. Because as you know, there's lots of people that have left the church that can have those discussions with you and can go there and, and know the complexities of those discussions. But it's, I love that you have safe people in the church to have those discussions and you don't feel judged for having those discussions or made to feel less faithful or any of the shaming comments we could make, you're the elect that are going to be seated the last days, you're the tares because you're having questions. Let's honor honest questions and honest and support good people like Tom that steps forward with questions. Right. Yeah, I've been very blessed. And maybe listeners, one of the reasons Tom doesn't have a lot of anger and a lot of pain is because he's had a supportive system around him. You've got Sounds like great parents, great family, good friends. You've navigated this in a really thoughtful way. And you've had, now that you're out more broadly, you've got really good people in your life, including priesthood leaders that are kind of go there with you and, and listen. I think listening is one of the greatest things that people can do and just validate your life experience. Yeah. Well, and I recognize that this is probably unfortunately rare, how good I've had it. And I would never want to, you know, diminish someone else who's had it a lot harder than me, right? Um, but I, I've been really blessed. And I think that's probably an indication that we're getting better at this as a church. I think had I grown up 20 years ago, I would have had a very different story probably, right? So we are getting better. Um, and it's meaningful for me to see so many members of the church who are who really care about this and are trying to figure this out. And yet we have these uh, kind of... Uh, you know, d difficult ways of dealing with doctrine or policy. And yet I, I see this enthusiasm and this compassion inside of a lot of membership, not all, right, but a lot. That for me it made, has made my journey a lot easier, even though it hasn't been easy, right? It's just, uh, I've been spared a lot of the heartache and, 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 and deeper depression that people who haven't been blessed like me have had to experience, so I'm grateful. One of the parts of your story that I picked up on that I think is part of that is you believe you're created the way you're supposed to be and Heavenly Father's not embarrassed about you. He doesn't look at you as a mistake. And that is a big difference from maybe 5 or 10, 15 years ago, how I think gay people felt. And um, it certainly took me a while listening to gay people to actually recognize that we ought to be on the same moral footing. We ought to look in the mirror where they're straight and gay and think we're created the way God wants us to be created. Because I realize if you actually believe this part of you, God doesn't like, or God is disappointed in you, or God believes is a weakness or something that went awry and he's surprised about this, that puts you in a different moral footing and makes your ability to have a meaningful relationship with God harder because you just don't think. And so that's one of the things I've recognized as a change. And, 
And then I think the decreased trauma, because you're not traumatized, you can have this anchor relationship. The same thing you taught to the people in Russia and the same thing that's given to the guiding light your whole life has been this constant. And that's, to me, that's the beauty of your story and about the church is this constant, the core part of our doctrine is that the church's job isn't to point us to the church. The church's job is the, the means of the church is a means to point us to God and Christ and the very things you're talking about. And that's the goal. Yeah. It's the, it's the anchor to the soul. Yeah. Right. But that's what my faith in God has done for me. And it, and it still is. And it's never been, been diluted by the fear that, God might hate this part of me or hate me because I'm gay. I've never even entertained It's really God. remarkable that even closeted at 15, 16, you were there. Yeah. I mean, I hated the part of me, <laughs> but I didn't think God did. How? Why did you, how did you know that at 15, 16? I knew God loved me probably in the same way that I knew I was gay, which is, I just, it was, it was just woven into the fabric of my life, right? I felt it in my bones. It's an, it's an intuition, it's a, and it's also a thing you develop, it, you know, with experience. I mean, I was taught well. My parents loved me, and they told me that God loves me. And so did, so did the church. The church was good for me as a kid. It didn't hurt me. And, I, oh, and I'm so grateful. Because not, not everyone gets that, but it didn't hurt me. It made me feel loved. And I knew I was a child of God. I just knew it. I've never, never questioned it. So it's got complicated and, and, and it's not clear where, where I go next, but that is my anchor. And I know that's true. It's the anchor the whole world needs right now. It's the anchor that our missionaries can take to the world. It's the anchor that keeps me, it's the needed, it's the needed anchor. Thank you, Tom. I'm going to press the pause button, listeners, because we're going to take the mic over to the piano that's coincidentally in the podcast room. We've done this once before. And um, do you want to introduce the piece before we hit the pause button? Oh, sure. I'll say something really quick about it. So this piece is called Pulses. Uh, it's just for solo piano. I wrote it just for this. <laughs> I, I, you composed a piece for this podcast. You're a special guy, Richard. So, <laughs> Listeners, this is cool. Yeah, so uh, it's it's a kind of a simple uh, study piece. It's you'll hear just come uh, circular kind of rhythmic patterns and uh, not a lot of melody, some tiny melodic fragments, but kind of a you know, kind of just some sincere and kind of pungent harmony, kind of a yearning quality. So it's great. Is that really vague? <laughs> That's great. It's perfect introduction. My impression, listeners, is to sign off now and just let the piece be the last thing you'll hear, and then you'll hear neither of our voices after the piece is done. Is that okay? Do you have anything else you want to say, Tom? That was great. Thanks. So thank you, listeners. Don't sign off, listeners. This is Richard Osler and Tom signing off. Um, but now we're going to listen to Tom's number. <laughs> 